This is Product by Design, a podcast by Prodigy, where we explore technology, artificial intelligence, user experience, product management, and the philosophy of building products and companies. All right, welcome back to another episode of Product by Design. I am Kyle, and this week we have another awesome guest with us, Ryan Glasgow. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Excited to be here, and thanks for having me on the show. Awesome. Well, we're excited to have you. Let me do a brief introduction for you, Ryan, and then you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. But Ryan is the founder and CEO of Sprig, which is a leading product experience insights platform and works with high growth companies like Figma, Notion, PayPal, Loom, and Dropbox. And you'll tell us a lot more about that. And Ryan, prior to starting uh, Sprig, was a product manager and early team member at, com- at five companies that he helped scale from startup to successful exit, including Weebly, uh, which was acquired by Square and Verb, which was acquired by Snapchat. So I'm excited to talk a lot more about those. But before we do, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? That was a great intro. And my, my background is, yeah, I've always been in product management and you know, really start, started with these companies uh, all as the first product manager, help them, you know, in many cases, find product market fit and other cases like Weebly, you know, scale to, you know, these eventual exits to acquires. And through that process, started to realize and found that common theme of deeply understanding the customer problem and really getting obsessed with customer problems and then thinking about how to really bring that user from point A to point B and solve that problem for them and started uh, Sprig. And what we do is we help uh, other product teams and product managers and researchers deeply understand their own customers so they can build award-winning product experiences. And we do that through in-product surveys, session replay, and prototype design testing and use AI to analyze all that data and make sense of all the data that's being collected so that they can really focus on the fun part, which is building and designing and launching exciting product experiences. Well, that's awesome. And I'm excited to talk more about that. Um, But before we do, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what you like to do outside of the office as well. As a founder, I can't say there's too much free time. (laughs) I think mentally it's 24 seven at a minimum, but I do have a one-year-old daughter. And so she's been a joy to come home to and spend time with on the weekends and then, you know, lately I've been looking into some, getting into some hobbies that are a little bit more accessible. You know, the things that I typically like to do, fly fishing or skiing, you can't do on a given weekend. And so I've been starting to pick up golf and get into that, which has been a nice change of pace. Very nice. Well, that is, that sounds like a lot of fun. So hopefully you'll be able to continue to pick up some of those hobbies, which Uh, very important. Well, I'm excited to dive into some of the things that you talked about, but I'm interested, you know, as we go backwards a little bit in your career and some of your experience, you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got into technology and specifically product management to begin with, because, you know, a lot of us get into this field in a lot of different ways. So, you know, how was it that you first got into product management and into you know, this, this area to begin with. Yeah. And something that I was born into, you know, I can't say that a lot of people have had that experience, you know, being born in, you know, San Jose, Santa Clara and, you know, probably second or third generation. And my, you know, grandparents were working on the orchards in Santa Clara, you know, picking, uh, you know, prunes and apricots and, you know, fruit. And it's certainly transformed since then. And so there are no more, you know, apricot uh, farms in San Jose anymore. Uh, and they all, it all got replaced with, you know, high growth tech companies. And so the 1.0 of Silicon Valley, you know, Intel, AMD, uh, you know, Adobe, this company, you know, Apple, uh, Google, and these companies, you know, really kind of popped up, you know, right around where I grew up. So my high school had the shared offense with AMD. I lived right next to the Intel headquarters. My dad worked in tech as well in the uh, hardware manufacturing for companies like Apple. And so as a little kid, you read the, you know, Sunday business times, you read about, you know, Steve Jobs getting funding uh, for his new venture, Apple. 
Um, and it's just exciting to really just kind of be a part of that. And so probably around 10 or 11, a lot of my friends would be skateboarding. I'd be skateboarding, but I found out the fun, exciting part for me was building a, a website about skateboards. And so, you know, since 10 or 11, always kind of had that passion for bringing ideas and information online and building websites and learning how to build websites with Dreamweaver and, you know, buying a Java book, a 600 page Java book when I was about 13. Uh, and so can't say a, a normal childhood, to be honest, but something that, you know, tech was really innate to how I was brought up and something that I was living and breathing since I was quite young. Awesome. Well, that, that's a, that's a really great beginning. And I'm interested in how, you know, that kind of led to some of these early product management roles at some of the companies that you mentioned, because you mentioned being, you know, one of the first product managers at some of these, you know, early companies like Verb and Weebly. Uh, what was it like as, you know, starting as one of the first product managers at some of these companies and, you know, scaling up as they grew, I assume grew relatively rapidly. You know, what was that experience like? What were some of the things that you were doing there? For most of the companies that I joined, it was actually too early for a full-time product manager. And so in many cases, I was designing, I was writing code, you know, product management when it's only a four-person company, you know, is more of a part-time role. And as these companies started to scale, I, the piece that I wanted to hold on to was that product management aspect. And so many of them, I started out in more of a generalist, you know, doing writing specs, but also designing those specs, but also contributing code to those specs. And then, you know, I think one of those examples was being uh, Weebly, where I did start as a full-time product manager. They're a little further along than some of the other companies. And, you know, it's just something that as these companies grew, that was the part that I was most excited about the part that I, you know, felt the most passion about is really seeing how I can roll up my sleeves to make this product to be as successful as possible. And that meant, you know, that servant leadership of finding out, can I QA the product? Can I write the test plan? Can I do the user research? Can I write the launch announcement email? And really just doing anything possible and in many ways, helping define product management. You know, when I joined Weebly, it was already a company that was doing very well and they had never hired a product manager before. And so, you know, my second day, one of the early engineers, more senior engineers comes up to me and asks, why did we hire you? You know, what are you doing here? And so I quickly realized that for companies that have never had a product manager, it's about demonstrating value. And even if, you know, they have had a product manager, sometimes product management can get a bad rap. And so really leading with value, rolling up your sleeves, showing that you'll do whatever it takes for this, this product to be successful is how you build that trust. You're in that respect. And given that, I mean, the companies had not had product management before is something that I learned to really demonstrate that value and, and, and earn that respect and not show up on day one and handing out product specs to be built. You know, that's something that, you know, can be off-putting for folks. And so as these companies grew up, you know, uh, stayed, you know, continue to focus and double down on product management on the role. And, but also that upbringing did help me realize how to really make sure everyone realizes how critical that role is. Not everyone wants to write test plans and, you know, talk to customers and write QA uh, stories. Yeah. No, that that's, that's really great. I'm interested, you know, what was your response as, as, you know, somebody is like, you know, what, what do you do here? Or what, what is your purpose for coming here? Because I've had that same question asked to me, like coming into early product roles. And I'm interested, like, how did you respond to that? And how did you kind of handle that mentality of like, you know, why did we even hire you? Yeah. And I, I had assumed there'd been some buy-in already. I, I assumed everyone knew what I would be doing and, you know, why the hire had been made and it just to be, to make this product successful, you know, doing what it takes. And I would ask them, what can I take off your plate? Like, what do you not want to do? And, you know, for the, particularly in the early beginnings, building out the trust and respect for that function. And in that case, it was thinking about all the edge cases for introducing Google authentication the team had not thought about merging accounts when you've already created an account with an email address. And then you also authenticated with Google, how you had to merge the two and deduplicate. 
And so I quickly jumped in and said, hey, let's look at all the different flows that a user could take with rolling out Google authentication and make sure that we deeply understand and can predict everything that might happen. And that we've actually accounted for that in our engineering efforts. And so came back with something, mapped it all out, reverse engineered what they had done, identified some key gaps and said, hey, you know, this is what we also need to build for this feature to be successful and use it to have a good experience. And you start to kind of see the aha moment, like, okay, this person, you know, is really going to help pick up some of the things that are currently not being done right now. And this actually is a really critical role for these features to be successful. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's, that's really good. So I'm interested, you know, as, as we kind of discussed your role at, at Weebly, you know, you mentioned that, uh, not only being one of the first product people there and as the company grew, but also, you know, having several patent, uh, patents to your, to your name and being part of the, the process there of these patent applications and having patents there. I'm interested like in that process, because I've been part of those discussions at companies before, like, do we patent some of these either technologies or processes? Um, what was that like going through like the patent process and the application and then ultimately like getting patents grant, grant, granted to, uh, to you and to some of the, the work that like you and others had done? And then, you know, weighing, do you do this or, or do you not apply for a patent on some of these things? Like what, what was the discussion there and, and kind of the cost benefit analysis of doing that? I think as, you know, folks working in tech where, just really focused on bringing new innovations to market and doing, you know, bringing new ideas to market and getting those in front of the hands of customers. I think the dark reality is that there is a legal process in place around innovations and there can be scenarios where you come up with something and someone else patents it and then actually sues you for what you came up with. And so at Weebly, we did, you know, file several patents and we often look at things that were first to bring to market. And so the first, uh, an innovation that we brought to market at Weebly, and I was the patent author for this, was building a website on a mobile device and doing that in a, with a drag and drop interface. And so using your finger and moving elements around the screen. And that was something that we were first to market. No one had ever done that before. It was a very difficult technical challenge because we had to build a JavaScript bridge between Objective-C, the Apple you know, iPhone operating system, APIs and the website, which was all in JavaScript and HTML and have those two sets of, you know, APIs control each other and, and discuss, talk to each other and something had never been done before. And so we realized like, Hey, this is something really new. It's really innovative. The worst case scenario is we spend all this innovation budget and R and D efforts on something. And then someone else several years later comes back and said, Hey, you know, we have this patent. We're going to take royalties on every dollar you make from this product. And so usually within one year of publicly launching something, you have a window. And so right when we launched it, we filed that patent. And about two and a half years later, we heard from the patent office and said, hey, you guys are, uh, you've got this patent. Congratulations. You're the first to bring it to market. Something that's very defensible. It is very unique and differentiated. Something that hadn't been done before. And so we got that patent, yeah, but about, about two and a half years for the drag and drop interface on a mobile device for building a website. And then when you get a successful patent, you can then expand that patent. And so actually just a few days ago, got a uh, update from now the Square team and the patent office saying it's now building a drag and drop interface on a computing device. And so a few years later, probably a five-year process overall, but a few years later, we expanded that patent. And I think at a minimum, it's important to be able to at least defend what you come up with. And if you're bringing a key innovation that's going to be core to what you're doing in a market, being able to at least defend yourself from you know bad actors is always a minimum. And here at Sprig, you know, about two and a half years ago, we also filed a pretty core patent to our product line. And in about two weeks, that's uh, going to be published, which we're really excited about. And so we'll be sharing a little bit more then, but against something that we're the first to market, some a key innovation, something that many other companies in space now do, that we can now at a minimum say, this is something that we legally invented and can protect and say that we 
you know, invented this concept. And then from there, you know, whether one be offensive or remain defensive is some open questions we're having internally, but at least we know that no one can come after something that we came up with ourselves. Right. Right. No, that, that's super interesting stuff. And the, like you said, the process is long and can be very, very drawn out. And so it's, it's interesting as you go through, because again, you have kind of that narrow window of you have to make a decision, especially like once you've done it, you have a very, a relatively short time frame. once it's been like made public to decide whether or not you want to, to file and do something. Otherwise, like that window starts to close very rapidly. And so you have to kind of move forward in the process. Um, so fascinating stuff. I'll be excited to, to learn more, especially once uh, more information comes out about what, yeah. what you have done at Sprig. So that's, that's exciting stuff. Um, I'm ex- I'm interested in, you know, talking more about, uh, you know, some of the, the things that you've done early on at companies, you know, you've, you've both founded companies and been involved very early on with multiple companies, including extra bucks, live fire, graph science, verb, Weebly, and now Sprig. So named off a whole bunch there. Um, one of the most important things, and we talk a lot about this is product market fit, you know, making sure that you have the, you know, the, the right product in the right market. Um, but I won't define that. I'll let you define that. What, what does product market fit mean to you? And how do you know that you have the right product market fit, especially early on with these companies and these new products? And, you know, when the first, the concept first came out, you know, by someone Sean Ellis about 13, 14 years ago, it was very, very early on. It was a very concise, specific definition, which I'll get into in a second. You know, now someone asked me, Hey, you know, we're scaling to, you know, at 50 million ARR, you know, does that, is that product market fit? Is 25 million ARR, is that product market fit? Is a hundred million ARR, you know, and Lenny Richiski, a popular influencer just did a series on finding product market fit and of the 20 top B2B SaaS companies and Sprig was one of them. And it showed us as the fastest to product market fit against one password and gusto and, you know, Figma and all these other companies. And someone asked him, you know, how are you defining product market fit? And he said, however they define it. <laughs> and so you probably have 20 different definitions yeah. from 20 different founders on what product market fit is. And certainly something right now that has, I think, become misconstrued. And so we always look at the original definition, you know, by Sean Ellis. And he was a early stage marketer, very similar career pattern with me where he always joined as the first marketer, but I, you know, I was joining as first product manager. And so companies like Dropbox logged me in, he has a successful track record. And, but he wanted to know whether it's worth joining these companies. You want to market a product that is ready for distribution, is ready to scale, is ready to really ramp up that go-to-market investment. And so he ran a survey and the key question in that survey was how disappointed would you be if this product no longer existed? And so there's a very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, not disappointed. And if you get above 40% for very disappointed, which means that your product is solving a real need, but also differentiated amongst the other options out there. And so if someone is not disappointed, it means maybe there's something that is as equally as good, or maybe that you're not solving a critical need. And that really helped him understand whether a product was ready for that marketing scale for him to really come in, roll up his sleeves and say, I'm going to make this a hundred million dollar business. And so at Sprig, you know, we also look at, and we have a template, we have a, a free gallery of templates for anyone to try out. We have a template around product market fit. And so that's what we look at. That's how we define it. Something that we look at on a regular basis to see how our product market fit is evolving over time and something that I encourage everyone else to also really be on top of and much more critical than net promoter score and some of these other vanity metrics, because it really does show how critical your product is and how differentiated your product is with a single question. Yeah. I I think that that's so good and so important. Um, And I I really like that. You, you kind of introduced uh, another idea and, and we talked about this a little bit uh, prior to to this discussion, but the idea of feature market fit as well. And as ideas 
and as companies get bigger, you know, it's not so much necessarily about product market fit, but can be much more about smaller versions of that, you know, feature market fit. Um, you know, how is that similar to product market fit? And and why is this idea of feature market fit, you know, important? And maybe how is it similar or how is it different? Something that we're seeing much more often with our customers, particularly those that are larger, you know, they might have several products, a product, a core product might have 50, 70 specific features or flows, um, or maybe even sub products that they have under that product line. And we're seeing many companies as they achieve overall product market fit, you want to understand the specifics of how all those features are performing and which ones are most critical. And we often see that the behavioral data doesn't really tell you whether a product or feature was critical or not. And so if someone uses a feature uh, only once a month, does that mean that it's not critical? It could be a very, very critical feature that performs a very specific task. And if you ask someone, if we take this feature away, would you be disappointed? They would say, absolutely. This is a critical, critical feature that I need. Uh, I think for me, you know, I was, just took a flight home from Cleveland from a conference and downloading the music on Spotify, something I don't use very often. But if you took that away, I would have five hours of no music. And so you think about a feature with low frequency with incredibly high value. And so what we see many of our customers run now, either after a new feature has launched or they really want to do an audit of all of their features is run a feature market fit survey. And it's the same question, but it's asked specifically about that feature. And so perhaps someone has used, you know, Sprig, we have very advanced targeting for end product surveys. You can really get and ask uh, specific questions to specific people in specific moments. And so an example of how we often recommend the feature market fit survey is looking at your high value user base. And so the users that pay you a little bit more than others, Maybe it's a business plan user or an enterprise customer, or maybe a pain user if you're in B2C. And then after they use a feature X number of times, maybe it's after the fifth time they've used a feature, the 10th time, the 10th time I've downloaded music uh, to my phone, it might add, pop up in the product and ask, how disappointed would you be if this feature no longer existed? And if it was, you know, again, downloading music for offline consumption, it would be very disappointed. And we're seeing more and more companies, you know, really want to understand each feature that they've got, um, not just looking at the usage, which doesn't really tell you how important a feature is, but actually asking about that importance of that feature and then ensuring that they're investing and improving the features that uh, are the highest value of the customers. And the only way to do that is to ask. Yeah. You've hit on a point that I think is so important that I don't know that we talk about as much. I know at least in in a lot of my conversations and a lot of my roles, like I don't think this idea of feature market fit is talked about nearly as frequently. And and you've brought up such a, a really great point that some of the things that we have in our products are can be really, really critical to a lot of people and can be really high value things. But again, they're not the things that are driving, you know, maybe the daily activity or like the monthly activity, but they're incredible. They're still incredibly high value things. And I can think of multiple things that I have used. I may use like once or twice a year, but they're so high value to me that are like, I need this. And I have one, like I have a couple specifically that came right to mind that are like, I use this like two or three times a year, but it is, I need something very specifically for, for this purpose for two or three times a year. And that's it. But, and, and I was using a product for it and then they, they got rid of it. And I was like, I have to find something specifically for this because it's so important to me and had to go out and like research products and find something. And like, those are, again, you're talking about like, and it was a feature of a product and and I had to go out and find a new product. I had to stop using the whole product because they took away one feature that was so critical to me. And so those are the types of things that if you don't realize in your product, we take away this one feature, it could drive away somebody 
from the product entirely. And that was my case. I stopped using it entirely, had to go find a new product because that one thing was so critical to me that I needed it in that product. Yeah. Um, so I, I love that. And being able, like you said, being able to find out before you drive users away that, Hey, if we take away this feature in our product, you know, is that, is it important to you? Yes. This is the, the single thing that is most important to me in this product. I will go find something else if you do not have it. Uh, and, and knowing that before you sunset it and take it away and, and drive people out like that's, I love that. It's, it's such an important thing to know. So yeah. a great, great, great topic that we probably don't talk about as much, or at least I, I know we haven't talked about as much and I don't hear as much conversation about. So I think that's an important thing for us to be talking about more. Yeah. And I do think that's the challenge of product management is that when you have that home run feature that everyone's using, you know, let's keep investing. You have that feature that, you know, no one uses, no one cares about, maybe no one likes. Okay. We don't have to invest further. We can consider sunsetting this, but most of our features, you know, as product teams are probably somewhere in the middle. It's something that people like, maybe they don't love. Um, and so the feature market fit will help you identify, is it a 20% very disappointed, a 30% very disappointed? But then that follow-up question will give you the insight into what you can do to get it to a 40. And maybe it's a 10 to 20. You say, hey, we're going to let it go. Maybe it's not like that feature that you described, but maybe it is something people don't use often. It's a 30 to 40. We want to get it a little bit higher. Here's some things that we can do to make it even more valuable to folks. And so looking at both of those together is really where we see the magic happen of really knowing the features that are critical, even if they're infrequently used, like the one you mentioned, but more importantly, understanding the gaps to get the ones that you want to be critical and, and what, if anything, you can do to get them there is where you can then think about how to invest your roadmap. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay. I feel like we may need to come back and do a whole podcast on future <laughs> because I, this, like I keep ideas, keep popping into my head of like, okay, here's a whole bunch of examples we need to start talking about because I think this is like more and more keep coming up. I will, we'll step away. I'll step off the soapbox for a minute and we'll save that. Uh, Cause I do want to talk about some other things, but this is, you've just, you've hit on such a great topic. Um, I do want to talk about obviously something that is top of mind for everybody, which is AI and, you know, being such a, a, a topic that has uh, become, you know, top of mind for everybody, you know, this, you know, over the past year or so as, you know, AI has, has just um, become so much more prominent in all of our tools and, and everything that we're using. Um, how, how do you see AI changing the role uh, broadly of product management, both currently and as we, as we move forward? It's certainly a really exciting time to be a product manager. And I, if you're at a company that has no need at all for AI, I uh, sympathize for you and <laughs> would slightly or gently encourage you to find a company that has a future of incorporating AI because it is such a revolutionary technology and something that have not seen since maybe the iPhone, you know, something come out and, you know, be really this exciting, perhaps even, you know, some people are comparing it to the internet, uh, which, you know, <laughs> somewhere between the iPhone and the internet is probably where it, it ranks. And it, it had been something that had been overhyped, you know, for the past probably five plus years and you'd call it AI and everyone says, no, it's just data science. It's just, you know, it's not really artificial intelligence and push back on you. And investors would say how it is something that's more of a services business because you have a human in the loop and you have all these people behind the scenes actually performing the work of the AI and doing all the complex tasks and how you'd have low gross margins as a result. But in the past 12 months, thanks to OpenAI and really taking Google's transformer research paper and fi finally having that breakthrough where it is something that can take on complex tasks and it can do large data analysis that does not require a team of people behind the scenes to do a lot of the complex efforts. 
And we are able to now deliver, you know, intelligence in our applications and give very complex inputs, whether it's our products giving complex inputs for tasks or as people giving complex inputs and getting complex outputs is something that has really changed how we build products, how we think about product management and an area that I think is just really exciting for all of us. And we're still, it's very clear we're in the early days of figuring out how to use these technologies, you know, what the boundaries are, what's possible, what models to use. And so very much a arms race right now from companies selling the pickaxes to the gold miners, but also the gold miners figuring out how to use the pickaxes. And so just this back and forth every week, every month has been such a rush to follow and also be a part of. And here at Sprig, we had some really exciting AI launches ourselves, but we're also thinking about how we can use our product to help others build with AI. And so we're seeing both of those play out this year in particular. Yeah. And I want to touch on that because, you know, you, you mentioned at Sprig, you know, you're, you're focused on the in uh, app and in, in products like surveys and playback. So, you know, for, for those of us who are in product manage, management, you know, really being able to uh, see, you know, what is happening as users go through and, you know, use different applications and tools and, and being able to understand that. How have you incorporated AI into that to, uh, you know, make the, the process, I guess, uh, uh, better or, or, you know, help those who are, I guess, analyzing and, and, and looking at these surveys and looking at this information, uh, to, you know, maybe get more insights or, or how have you incorporated it in some way? The, yeah, the founding thesis for the company is really from my time at Weebly, where we were a high growth company when I left, you know, 50 million accounts and the, there was an unmet need in the world for companies that are quickly scaling to get in context qualitative data from their customers about what they think in the moment about a particular feature, like we just talked about future market fit or how to improve an onboarding experience or to understand maybe a trade. And so that from day one, it was really hyper-focused on helping these companies quickly scaling who had larger user bases, um, collect large volumes of data. And so the first person to join me at Sprig is our head of AI, Kevin Mandich. And so we've actually been working with AI since day one of the company's founding. And we had used the open source models from Google and it was a very different process to work with AI. And we brought on our own, um, our own data sets. We did all of our own training. You know, we had all of the models running ourselves with, you know, open source models on our own hardware. Um, and so we had been fairly relatively early, you know, now when you look at how everyone's at with AI, we're relatively early to building and scaling with AI. And the, the piece that we've always focused on applying AI towards is helping these companies where Sprig unbiasedly the best in the world at collecting in context data at scale, but helping our customers understand that data at scale. And so if you're getting a thousand survey responses, in a week or in a day, really making sense of all that data and helping understand the trends and the themes. And so that's why Kevin joined, you know, Sprig as, you know, the first, for, first person after me to join the company uh, is because that was a piece that he was focused on since day one. And over the past, you know, nine months, we've now switched to different models and used different techniques, but the efficacy and what we can do with those models is now significantly farther along, significantly more advanced. And that's what's been really exciting is taking something that works really well and our customers are happy to something where the realm of possibilities are far greater from where we were, you know, even just one to two years ago. Yeah. Where do you see kind of the next phases of that? Because obviously, you know, things have changed uh, significantly since, you know, since you probably started. So, how have you seen things change over, you know, since you started to now? And then where do you see things going and changing over, you know, the, the course of the next little while? Very similar to building a startup, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, it was, you know, 20 years ago, it was who can, 
who can build the product. That was really, you know, if you could build it, you usually were the winner. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to, you know, bring complex SaaS applications online and, you know, the hosting and, you know, the, all the processes there. And, um, you know, even things like Ajax for complexities. And I think with AI, four to five years ago, it was who can build the model, who, you know, who can tune the model, who can get all the data, who can figure out how to make it work to specific problems. And that's where we were as a company in 2019, 2020, 2021. Uh, we had our own administration panel. We had a team of researchers tuning the model, correcting the data, reviewing every response, providing feedback on all the theme analysis, very intensive technical and labor task. And we're now at a point where the accessibility for AI is something where you can do in a weekend project and you can get access to very advanced GPT-4, 3.5 models. You know, Google is about to roll out their own models as well. That'll be very easy to use as well. And so the accessibility of AI is very low. And that's why there's just this huge rush of AI startups and they all look candidly the same because the barrier to entry is so low compared to where it was four to five years ago. And so here at Sprig, we're, we, we are applying it with a text analysis, theme analysis, and those are some things we've been doing since day one of the company's existence. But we're thinking now about far more complex, more interesting, compelling use cases. Um, and so one we just launched this year is analyzing an entire set of survey data. It's something that no one has been done before is a vertically integrated solution where you're collecting large amounts of survey data in context from your users, but also you're at passing Sprig is ingesting all that data into GPT-4. And you can now ask questions about your survey as that data is coming into Sprig. And so you can ask about correlations between question one and question two. You can ask about even suggestions on how to improve your product based on the survey data. And so here at Sprig, we just ran an onboarding survey understand our onboarding process and some in-product surveys pop up, you know, after you complete the onboarding and we got some really great insights and we asked, you know, in the spring interface, it's very conversational now. And our product team was asking, how can we improve onboarding based on these survey results? And it came back with some really great insights and ideas and helped us really think about how to move our product forward. And so as product teams, it's exciting to have a, you know, you know co-pilot is the word that a lot of folks are throwing around right now. Having a co-pilot to do things that might have not been possible before to ingest volumes of data that perhaps we didn't have the time for or even the mental capacity. Um, and so at Sprig, we're also looking at how to ingest everything in Sprig into, you know, the, the models and every event, every attribute, everything users ever done in your product and all their session replay data and all their survey data and actually making sense of that with AI. Those are the things that have never been done before that we're really excited about and we'll be launching uh, later this year. And so I think that's where you start to get the real power, the absolute maximum of what's possible is when you go beyond these more obvious use cases, but think about something that is far more powerful that is outside of what a human can possibly do. Yeah, you've you've touched on something that I think for me is one of probably one of the most exciting things. It sounds to me like it for you, it's probably one of the most exciting things is to have an <clears throat> like you said, almost an AI co-pilot to help you as a product manager, where it's it's taking a lot of the things that used to be incredibly, incredibly difficult and and being able to say, like, hey, all of this data, you know let me ask questions about it. And kind of like you were saying, like, Hey, you know, how can we improve this part of the product? And so rather than me as a product manager, having to go through and say, and look through all of the, you know, both the data and the, you know, the, the survey questions and everything about like our onboarding process, being able to just take all of that in and then ask questions into the kind of like you were saying, the, the, well, I guess I'll call it the Sprig co-pilot in this case and say like, Hey, how can I improve this? Or where is you know, the most difficult part of our product to use and being able to get actual uh, answers back and then being able to like almost have like a collaborative session 
uh, without having to dig in. Because I mean, I'm thinking back to some of my experience, like five years ago of, of, you know, digging through like just, just massive amounts of like questions and data. And then like trying to pinpoint like, okay, here's the most, here's where I think the most difficult part is of this process. And then like, you know, correlating that with like actual user interviews and being like, okay, yeah, this is, this is it. And, you know, matching that and then like going out and testing it. Like these are, I mean, that's like a typical product management process. If you can make that like a question and answer session based on all the data that you have, like all of a sudden what would take like several weeks could potentially take like a few minutes. And I don't know, like that's an exciting thing as a product manager. And, and that's kind of, I may be like simplifying it, but that's like kind of the vision that you were painting for me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll get far better product experiences as a individual. We'll get far more leverage for what we can do, you know, in our time. I know that the CEO of, I think JP Morgan predicted a three and a half day work week, thanks to AI. So maybe a little bit too futuristic, but I think it's just exciting to see just how much it's impacting our lives. Yeah. And at Sprig, you know, we're certainly part of that journey for product teams and they're already letting us know I now have far more insight into that product experience because some, you know, AI is able to analyze all the data for me. And then I can deeply, you know, again, our vision of helping people, uh, product teams deeply understand their customer. They now get far deeper understanding of that product experience and that customer experience with their products because the AI is doing all of that uh, analysis for them. And they can get very specific on those questions that they have. And it's able to process all that data and then come back with specific recommendations. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. Uh, what advice would you have for somebody who is either thinking about founding a company or maybe, you know, starting out and founding a company? You know, founding a company is something that I'm glad that I took really seriously. It's not something where I was a solo founder 22 and, poured my life savings into starting a company. And I know some folks are doing that. And right after they're just really eager to be that entrepreneur. I, I ran through the paces. I put in my time. You know, I joined Verb. It was very early on, pre-product market fit. You know, as another founder and helped bring that product to life, won a bunch of awards, got acquired by Snapchat, Weebly, put in my three years, you know, joined as the first PM, helped that company scale uh, to around 400 people you know, when I left and really just seeing the different parts of building a company, really being a part of other successes, seeing what a well-run company looks like, helping another, you know, founder achieve product market fit or scale her own company did give me a lot of experience and confidence when I started Sprig. And it was, you know, we were able to get to product market fit brought in some really exciting early customers, raised a really exciting seed round with the top seed investor. You know, our series A was Excel, our series B with was Andreessen Horowitz. And, you know, they look at all the startups. They get probably 2000 pitches per year per partner. They do two investments per year, typically per partner. And so you look at the odds and the ratios of being chosen by, you know, a tier one A VC firm. I think it does show that that experience does come into play. And I think people even are a little bit shocked about, you know, I'm a Niners fan and uh, Brock Purdy was chosen as the last pick of the draft, but he's now considered a top 10 quarterback. He put in four years in college. He was at Iowa, you know, as a starter, I think for three years. And the person that he beat had played only, I think, 12 games in college, Trey Lance. So, you know, he just did the freshman year. He jumped right into the NFL, didn't get the experience, more talented, but ultimately is now a third string on the Dallas Cowboys. And so using that sports analogy, I would, I would encourage anyone to, just because you can raise a seed round today, doesn't necessarily mean that in 10 years, your company is going to be that home run exit. There's a lot of seed money floating around. And I would encourage you to put in the time with the startups, get that management experience, learn how to be a great manager, manage three or four people for, you know, at least two years, because if your startup does well, you don't want to learn how to be a manager with your own company. You want to get that experience somewhere else. You want to bring that to starting your company. 
and not have to learn that on the fly. And so would really encourage folks to put in their time, join companies like Sprig, join a company like Retool, you know, join some of these, you know, uh, these companies that are doing well, be a part of their journey, be a part of their success, see what success looks like, um, roll up your sleeves. And then when you have put in that time, then start that company and it'll just give you so much better odds, not only of just the first one or two years, but also really building an enduring business, you know, something 10 plus years that really has an impact on the world. It's very, very rare where you're a Mark Zuckerberg or a Dylan Field and you can pull that off at 19 or 20. Uh, so, and I think Dylan, you know, put in five years before launching Figma. So it even shows, yes, for the very, very best, they're going to have to figure it out along the way. Yeah, I think that's absolutely great advice Like to learn a number of the different things uh, as you get that experience, you know, because obviously as a founder, you're, you're going to have to know all of those different areas uh, because you're going to be responsible for a whole bunch of different things, managing people, managing a company, managing all of those different parts. And so getting those reps in, like you said, and getting the experience or at least the exposure from people who have the experience and then being able to take all of that into your own company and being able to at least have an understanding of all of it and having done parts of it, whether that's managing and you know marketing or product and, and being able to take that experience into what you're doing um, has to be, has to give you so much more confidence. And then, you know, some peace of mind, obviously, you know, as, as you own it, you know, there's only going to be so much peace of mind that you can have, but you know, being able to take that experience into what you're doing um, makes it that much more likely that you're going to be able to have some success with it as well. So I think that's great advice. Yeah. Um, Ryan, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, I appreciate all of your insight. Uh, I, I think we've covered so much ground and, and so many great topics. And like I said, we'll probably do a podcast episode on several of these areas. But um, I do have two kind of final questions that we like to ask uh, everybody. Is there any advice that you would have for anybody who maybe is starting out as a product manager or is looking to kind of scale up their career in product management? When I went from a senior product manager earlier on in my career to a group product manager, I really thought about what that next phase looked like. And I deeply focused on strategy, you know, business strategy, competitive strategy, corporate strategy, product strategy. I read book after book, you know, Michael Porter, you know, really unpacking the, the, you know, entire topic of strategy, good strategy, bad strategy, some really great books out there. But as I've gotten into now as CEO of Sprig, I actually think this advice applies just as much is that there's a CEO, the CEO of actually Snowflake, Frank Slootman. He really helped me rethink how to really level up as a leader. And it was, he is actually, he doesn't think strategy is that important, candidly. And I was a little taken aback by that. And I thought, okay, this is this world-class CEO. He's helped scale three of the fastest growing tech companies potentially ever, and, or at least in business, you know, B2B SaaS. And he's saying strategy is not that important. And I really dug into his book. It's called Amp It Up. It's based on a popular article that he wrote called Amp It Up that you can find. And it's based on three principles. One is raise your standards. The second one is pick up the pace. And the third one is narrow your focus. And we had some of those inner values here at Sprig. Uh, we'll probably one or two of those concepts. And as the leadership level, we got so excited about just those three principles. We fully incorporated those explicitly into our company values. And I think that's just very applicable for anybody who's looking to move into that IC, to that manager role, or a senior PM to move into a leader of a larger product portfolio, is it's really about execution. How quickly can you execute? Can you narrow your team's focus? Can you raise the standards? Can you accelerate the team's pace? And the teams are able to do that. And Frank is a great case study on, on those three areas. But the teams are able to do that. Are the, It's very, very difficult if a team is operating on all three of those dimensions perfectly. 
And so a big believer now in that amp it up philosophy. And I encourage anyone who's looking to really level it up strategy, take a look. There's some good books out there, like good strategy, bad strategy that I mentioned, but ultimately focus on execution and your team's ability to deliver. I think you've hit on some really, really incredible points. And I love that the idea of, you know, accelerating what you're doing, raising the standards and probably most of all, narrowing your focus. Cause that for me is such an important thing that I'm constantly thinking about. Like how can I personally narrow my focus, but also how can we as a team narrow our focus constantly? And I absolutely love that. And, and I'll have to check out that book as well. Uh, cause it sounds like a, a really, really great read. I'm interested going along those same lines, you know, are there other things that you have been reading, listening to, or watching recently uh, that you would recommend? I can't say there's anything specifically recently that really stands out that I would be excited to share with folks today. And so I'll focus on just some of my classics that I think are, you know, anyone in the product space should be reading or at least have read before. The first one is Competing Against Luck, which is by Clayton Christensen. And it really focuses on that jobs to be done principle. And there's a very famous example that he uses around a fast food company that is selling milkshakes. And it's really about in the morning, the people on the way to their work, they're all buying their milkshakes. And the company assumed it was a dessert. You know, after you have your hamburger, you have your milkshake, but they found out that the milkshake, the reason why it was so popular for breakfast is that people are driving to work. They can hold it with one hand and it doesn't make a mess. It's filling and it takes about 10 to 20 minutes to consume. So it keeps them occupied on their commute. It checks all the outcomes that someone's looking for uh, to really get on their way to work and arrive fully fed and ready to go for their work day, but also keep them somewhat entertained and, and busy on their, on their commute. And so that principle really introduced and I think became fundamental to how I think about building products is thinking about the outcomes that people are driving and looking at what they want to achieve in their life and building products, perhaps as a milkshake for people to have for breakfast. And so definitely one that I recommend uh, competing in outcome-driven innovation is a deeper dive into those specific concepts. I won't go through those again, but outcome-driven innovation is also one of my favorites and one that I often read again. And then I do want to plug one that uh, I helped create, which is our Sprig template gallery. And so just some really great templates and resources for folks to dig into, questions to ask on their next interview, you know, questions to ask in their next survey. You, know, you can use Sprig, you don't have to use Sprig, but just a really great resource that I often go back to when I'm talking to our customers about some really good ideas on questions that are going to deliver exactly what I'm looking for in those conversations or in that Sprig survey. Yeah, th those are some, some great recommendations and we'll put the links in the show notes as well. Uh, I continually go back to uh, some of those as well as I think some core ideas and things in product management that I think are so important uh, for, for product managers to constantly be thinking about. Um, and finally, wanted to ask, you know, are there any products that you have been using and would, would like to recommend, whether that's uh, digital products or physical products, anything that you have found particularly useful or interesting? I'll take a contrarian approach on this. And I know everybody loves ChatGPT and it's really taken the industry, uh, you know, and really taken over how we think about AI. But the one that I is the, it's not the top player, but I think it's a sleeper. And I think long-term, I think it's gonna be very interesting is Google's Bard. And the reason why I think Bard is very interesting is that ChatGPT is incredibly powerful, but it's in a very advanced piece of tooling. There's custom instructions. You have to know all the prompts. You have to do a lot of prompt smithing to get the exact output that you're looking for. Last month, the prompt might work great. I'll notice some of my prompts to ChatGPT don't work as well. And when I use Google Bard, I've noticed their ability to cross the chasm with building a product, you know, Google being a world-class consumer tech company. Google Bard is a company and a product 
It's a product that I believe has crossed the chasm further than where ChatGPT is today because it doesn't require these custom instructions. You can use the same prompt consistently and only I've seen improvements, not regressions in the output that I'm getting. And it often, you think about just some of the features of a fully baked uh, you know, chat interface with AI, it has, a, I consider it more of a fully baked product. And what I'm more comfortable recommending right now to a friend, a family member to do their work. And one that I actually use far more than ChatGPT for those reasons, the consistency, the accessibility, the simplicity, that's what I think of a consumer grade product and one that I've been recommending and have been pleasantly surprised by. Yeah, I, I think you've you've hit on such an interesting and important point, especially if we have, as we've seen the rise of a lot of these tools, is it's not just about the power behind it, but the uh, usability of these tools. And I, as I've been using them, I have found something very very similar. Just today, as I was using uh, a number of these tools for some of the work that I was doing, I have been more and more drawn to a number of different ones, like you're talking about, you know, there's ChatGPT and then there's Bard and, uh, you know, you're able to get, you know, different things uh, in different ways from each of them. And in some, you know, sometimes the simplicity and ease of use just wins out frequently. And it's fascinating to me. I think we'll probably see that continue to be one of the main points that becomes such an important part uh, as it moves forward is is not just the power behind it, but how easily can we get what we need out of the tools without having to do significant prompt engineering and, and just what's the, the user experience behind it. I, I think that's such a great point. Yeah. Awesome. I, I absolutely agree. And it's, I will say it's very exciting. I'm sure for all of us to look at this AI race that's happening in front of our eyes. And I think something we'll look back and compare it to the mobile phone advent of the internet, other seminal moments in tech history. And we now get one that we can all experience and grab our popcorn and see what happens and see who wins. Yep. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Ryan, again, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, where can people go to find out more about you, about Sprig, about, you know, anything that you're working on? So definitely check out Sprig. So we're at Sprig.com. And again, we offer in-product surveys, session replay, design prototype testing, and AI to analyze all the data that you get with Sprig. Uh, we just launched that conversational interface. You can ask questions about all the data that you get, which is a really powerful way to deeply understand your customer and find product market fit, increase product market fit, you know, find feature market fit, and deeply understand that customer experience. And we have a really generous free plan that we just rolled out. And so I encourage everyone to try out Sprig, uh, sprig.com slash sign up. And you can create your free account. You can install our SDK. You can ask your own in-product surveys, run your own session replay to understand your user experience. And the best place to find me is on Twitter or LinkedIn. So slash Ryan Glasgow, my full name on either LinkedIn or uh, Twitter or X, as I should say. (laughs) Yeah, I I'll probably continue to use Twitter for the foreseeable future, but uh, we will put both of those links in the show notes as well. So you actually all of those links in the show notes. So you can definitely check out Sprig and check out uh, connect with Ryan on Twitter or X and LinkedIn. So we'll have those links in the show notes. Awesome. Right. Thanks for having me on the, on the episode today and really excited to meet some of the listeners. I'd love to hear from you. DMS are open. Also any, uh, If you try out Sprig, let me know your thoughts as well. Awesome. Well, again, appreciate it, Ryan. And thank you everyone for listening. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks again for listening. If you like the show, be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow the show on TikTok at prodigy.co and on Twitter at prodigy.co. You can also follow me on both of those platforms at Kyle Larry Evans. If you want more product conversation, check out my newsletter Prodigy at Prodigy.co. You can also follow me on Medium at Kyle Larry Evans or check out my Medium publication Prodigy. Of course, you can check out all these links in the show notes.